What an encouraging series of songs here this morning, ending with this call for us to hold on. A lot of times in your Christian experience, that's exactly what it will take. You've got to hold on. You may not want to hold on. You may be going through a shaking. You may be experiencing things that are heartbreaking or heartrending, but you've got to hold on. You will make it through if you hold on to God. He won't let go of you, but you have to hold on to Him. If you don't mind, Sister Heather, put that first song back up here for just a minute. Talking about being bound together in love, I might be able to quote it, but as is almost always the case, the songs here had a whole message to them. And it's worth, thank you, Brother Kosa, it's worth considering the message of these songs. We should never ignore if God is doing something. If God is inspiring something, if God is anointing something doesn't matter what the method is that God's using, if he does it through music or through a ministry in terms of a message or a testimony. We should pay attention to what God is doing that we can feel the Spirit in. We should pay close attention. We shouldn't just move on past our song service if the song service had a message in it. You better pay attention to the message. And in this first song, it was an appeal for us to be bound together in love. It says, here we dwell in heavenly places in the kingdom of the Lord. Here we have such wonderful joy. It's talking about our fellowship being so divine and that we've been added and been made a part. The theme of that first song is all about us recognizing just how incredible it is that God's made us a part. That's why it was such a perfect series of songs when you go on to a song that talks about recognizing that you're a part of the body of Christ. It's more precious than silver, isn't it? More precious than anything when you realize what God has done and where he's brought you to. Where he's brought you from and where he's brought you to are two very important things you better never forget. Never forget where he's brought you from. It'll keep you humble no matter where he brings you to. Sometimes God can bring you to a place and you'll lose your humility because you forget where he brought you from. You don't remember just how bad you were, just how far he had to bring you to bring you to this place where he's honoring you or where he's doing some work in your life, you don't want to forget where he's brought you from. Like the other song says, remember I'm human and humans forget. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. Don't let me forget where you brought me from. It'll keep you grounded, you know. I just mean it'll keep your spirit grounded so you don't think too highly of yourself when you realize where he's brought you from and you realize how he got you here. If you're in a better place than you were yesterday, and I certainly pray everybody in this assembly is in a better place than they were yesterday, and I don't just mean yesterday in a sense of a 24-hour day, I mean in the yesterday of your past life, hope you're in a better place right now, and if you are, I hope you don't forget how you got here, because God brought you here. He brought you to this assembly. He brought you to this place in terms of relationship with Him. And now he's wanting to bind us into that relationship. It's true in this song. It's principally talking about being bound together in relationship with one another. But we've got to be bound together in the same way in relationship with God. We've got to love God and love our neighbor, don't we? Those two great commandments. Bound together with cords that cannot be broken. I said something about this here just the last few weeks. But the fact is that that's a song that shouldn't have to last forever. The results of it should last forever, but the first part of the song shouldn't have to last forever. We shouldn't always have to be bound together with chords, should we? Well, depends on how poetic you want to make it, you know. If the chords are love, well, of course we should. But in the beginning, the chords of love are somewhat constraining, you know. You're limited 
in your love when you bind yourself in relationship to somebody. At least you ought to be if you have any sense. Be limited in your love when you bind yourself into a special relationship with somebody, like a marital relationship. That limits your choices. It better limit your choices. And at times that might feel somewhat constraining to be bound into a relationship where you're kind of tied together, but eventually you should grow together until there wouldn't need to be a single cord holding you together. You've grown so tightly together that you are one. That's what God's first intent for marriage was, wasn't it? He said that they'll leave their mother and their father and they'll come together. They'll be bound together. They'll be one. Well, that's what God wants in our relationships with one another. He wants us to be one with one another. That's what he wants in our relationships with him. He wants us to be one with him. He doesn't want us to be our activities, our will, our actions, and his will and his actions. He wants them to be synonymous. But we begin by being bound together because we have the kind of a nature that requires some constraint and controls to keep us in relationship. But we don't want to stay that way forever. We're bound together with cords that ought not to be able to be broken. It says they cannot be broken. They can be broken by you, but you don't want to break them. If you're really bound together in love, if what is binding you together is love, then it can't be broken. If it's genuine love, that can't be broken. Not if both individuals on both sides of the relationship have genuine love for one another. You can't break that if it's genuine. And Brother Costa told you God loved you. We love him because he first, first is a pretty important word, isn't it? That, I'm validating Brother Don's message. It didn't need any validation. It can stand on its own. But we love him because he first loved us. He loved us before we loved him. That's what's so astonishing. We were so unlovable, but he already loved us. So don't think that God loves you because you're just so lovable. You might be lovable now. I happen to think most everybody in this building is pretty lovable. I said most everybody, but I really mean all of you. I just want you to be careful, not get too arrogant, you know. Maybe I'm lovable and you're acting bad, you know. Fact of the matter is, God loved you when you weren't lovable. And he still loves you. As you're developing in your love, he's growing in his love for you. Not that he could grow in his love in the sense that he didn't love you entirely to begin with, but the relationship is growing. A relationship has to grow, you know. That's what makes it healthy. You don't stay in a static state of what you were when you first come into relationship with your spouse. You better grow in your relationship. In fact, I can tell you for certain, just from the standpoint of marital advice, if you do not grow in your relationship to a stronger love than you had when you first entered that relationship, your relationship isn't going to survive. Because when you first enter into your relationship, you're kind of in the sweetbread days, so to speak, as some of you used to call it. You're in the honeymoon period. Everything that might later be frustrating is just coated over with sugar at that point. It all just is so nice. I don't care how they roll up the tube of toothpaste. I love them so much. I got to be with them as much as I can. And a few years later, it can be something just as small as that. Maybe they don't roll up the tube of the toothpaste like you like it or whatever other example you want, you know. And that will start to aggravate. You better be growing in your love because your love's going to have to grow big enough to cover a multitude of sins. And I don't mean terrible things. I just mean things that irritate you. What's that, Brother Joe? Two tubes. Two toothpaste tubes? That's a little safer. But some people are perfectionists, you know, and they like things just a certain way, you know. I'm borderline there. You look over at the other toothpaste tube and it isn't even your own. And you're thinking, what's the matter with them that theirs isn't rolled like mine, you know? Because, of course, the way I roll mine's got to be right. That's how we all feel, isn't it? We think we're always right in our way of doing things. 
We may find out in a relationship that we weren't right in our way of doing things. You certainly will find that out in your relationship with the Lord. You'll find out as you grow in your relationship with the Lord that you're going to learn that there's some things you thought were pretty good that weren't good at all. There's some things you thought were the best way of thinking and acting that weren't the best way of thinking and acting. And one of the deeper lessons that you'll learn is you'll learn that there are some things you were sure were the best way for you. This is what is best for me. It's where I feel most at peace. It's where I feel most comfortable. That you'll find out as time passes, we're definitely not the best way for you. But you just haven't experienced another way yet. And you come to a place where you experience another way that when you grow, you'll find that is better for you than anything you ever could have imagined for yourself. But we start out, like this song says, and we stay this way for a long time, bound together with cords. And we should be praying that God would bind us together, like this song says, bind us, we pray, into one spirit. You could apply that with the capital S and say we want to all be bound together in the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit produces a spirit that is a disposition. There's different kinds of spirits. I'm not talking about evil and good here. I'm talking about that a person can have. There's different kinds of spirits in the Bible. You can and should make a differentiation between spirit with a capital S and with a small letter S because the word spirit, unless you're talking about something that is a supernatural disembodied type of a spirit, the word spirit, when it's applied to a human person, is talking about their disposition. When it's applied to God, it can be multidimensional in its meaning, but it is in part referring to his disposition. God has a spirit. You know, when we come into the sanctuary, one of these songs is talking about how his spirit is here. When we come to the sanctuary and feel his spirit, we're not just feeling a power source. That's true. We are feeling a power source. Like you feel, you might get a, feel a current of electricity, but it's far deeper than that. It's not just power. It's his personality you're feeling. The spirit of God in part is his personality. Your feeling is personality. That's why there's different shifts emotionally sometimes in a worship service where you can feel a more tender feeling, where you can feel a more triumphant, rising feeling. It's God's personality you're connecting to. You're singing about something that's glorifying God, it's bringing God glory, and it raises the level that way. You're singing about something that's a tender, consecrational thing that is appealing to God's mercy and grace, and it will bring that type of a spirit into the sanctuary. So we have a spirit that is our spirit. We want our spirit to be like his spirit. And we have a human role model that can show us what that looks like. Jesus is the example of somebody who is demonstrating the disposition of his father. So in order to understand what the father looks like, not physically looks like, what the father spiritually looks like. When Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the father, he meant you're looking for what the Father is looking like. And let me get a little deeper. This isn't just about you having the ability to look at the Father. Do you realize he himself said no man has seen the Father? No man has seen the Father, Jesus said. And yet he says, when you see me, you see the Father. So which was true? Well, they're both true. Kevin already knows the answer to my trick questions. He knows most of them are both. I think that was Kevin. It's true that both are true, but you better think about how both are true, because if you get reversed how they're both true, you'll get into some false doctrine. They're both true in the sense that Jesus is demonstrating his Father's spirit, his Father's disposition, his Father's personality, his Father's purity. But he's not demonstrating his Father's person in some physical, literal sense. Then when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God the Father. 
That's why he says no man's seen the Father. And the reason is because man hadn't been in the physical direct presence of the Father that way, only through his spirit in a secondary way. So Jesus was demonstrating the personality of God the Father, something you and I have to develop. That's what the image of Christ is. It's the image of God. It's the same image because it's a perfect copy. Jesus is the express image of the Father. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus is the Father. That means Jesus is the perfect copy, the perfect reflection of the Father. If you want to know exactly what the Father is like, you can look at the Son and find out exactly what the Father is like. And one of these days, this earth is going to be filled with millions of sons and daughters who are going to be express images of the Father, because that's the goal. We ourselves are supposed to be remade into the image of God, aren't we? So we're being bound together right now. We're going through a process of our hearts being connected together. That's a critical thing to occur in your Christian experience. You've got to first be bound together in your heart with God. If you don't do that, it's not going to do you a bit of good to be bound together with your brother. All you'll create then will be a social spirit in a church. There's nothing wrong with a social spirit. We're going to have a dinner this afternoon, and one of the things that will be part of that dinner is fellowship. Fellowship is a very healthy and important part of a church's life. But the social side is secondary to the spiritual side. And it won't do you any good to have a social spirit of being able to get along with everybody if you don't get along with God. Because eventually everybody you get along with so well will be dead and so will you if none of you are in relationship with God. But if you first get along with God and then those you're in a social spirit with are also getting along with God, that relationship with God and with them is going to go on through eternity. So we want to be bound together, don't we? We want our hearts to be knit together in love. We want to go through that process that will eventually make us one people. We can use that language and say we're one people, and to some degree we are. I hope this church is one people, if you can permit the use of that in that kind of a poetic way. hope we aren't divided into camps. In fact, I don't need to hope that. I already know it. I know this assembly well enough to know there's no camps here. There's no cliques here. It's one people. Isn't that precious? Aren't you glad it's just one people and not a whole bunch of camps that are trying to each do their own thing? We're one people. The body of Christ is to be one people. We're working on that project at a corporate level that is a little more difficult than the local level. The local level, we see each other more often. We have more of a commonality because we have often, very often, if a pastor is there for any length of time, you've got one teacher for a while. You've got one person who's a father in that assembly for a while that imprints that assembly in a way that if everybody is in harmony with what the leadership is doing, it'll make everybody else more in harmony with one another. That's harder to do at the body level because you have a lot more leaders at the body level. But we're working on that project that we want God to bind our hearts together. Part of what allows that project is us interacting with each other. It's why I so appreciate the Bowyers being here. It helps us to bind our hearts together. We've had some time that we've spent with their family in the past, little brief periods here and there. But this has been probably, well, probably is not the case. This has been the longest time we've got to spend time together. And you know, once in a while, you have somebody come over and they're over for a few days visiting your home. Wait till I finish the sentence. Don't get mad at me before I finish the sentence. They're there for a few days and you're thinking, oh my, when are they leaving? Please tell me. And you're nice about it. When will you have to go? And what you're really saying is, is it tomorrow? <laughs> With the bowyers, if I have to ask when do you have to go, I might start crying to have to ask you. Because tomorrow, the next day, Let's say next year, <laughs> I'm not trying to keep you here 
Your pastor wouldn't appreciate that, but we could have them here just as long as they could be. They're a precious family. We love them. We love all the people of God, but I feel a special feeling for Brother Mark, Sister Lavina, Brother Jaden. Got a special feeling for them, and we should have that special feeling for each other. That's part of God binding our hearts together in love. It should be natural for us. It shouldn't be unnatural for you to have to force your affection, you know, like I've got to get along with these folks, whoever they are your next door neighbors, whatever, your next door neighbors, you might have to do some forcing of affection, depend on their state of mind and where they're at. But the fact of the matter is it shouldn't have to be forced. It should be a natural thing for us to love one another, shouldn't it? It should be a natural thing for us to want to be bound together. It should be a natural thing for us to seek unity. Listen to what I'm saying. We should be seeking unity. There may be things that are impeding unity, There may be beliefs, there may be practices. I'm not talking about in our church or anybody that's here today. I mean in the general body. There may be things that are impeding our unity because there are things we think need to be fixed because they've just got to get that right so we all can be on the same page, whoever they is, you know. It could be a lot of people. Problem is, you may be the they that needs to get it right. But a lot of times we're so convinced they've got to do this my way in order for it to be right. That's a foolish thing to say because it may be your way isn't the right way. No matter how comfortable it is to you, adjustments might need to be made. That's part of the sacrifice of love is that we make adjustments to our desires, our ways to make a compromise. You can't compromise truth. You can't compromise your relationship with God, but you can compromise your way of doing things sometimes. We do that in order to be bound together. We should be seeking unity and never division. God is the one who knows when to divide. And painful as it might be, sometimes God does divide things. So we have to be careful what we put our hands on sometimes because we better not take some responsibility in our actions or our words for something that's too big for us. Brother Bowyer brought up here in our Friday night Bible study, we were talking about the restoration of Israel, which we've been talking about for a few weeks now. He brought up the statement, it's in the sixth chapter of Matthew. What I'm thinking of is right around the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th verse, when he's talking about the light of the body being the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Brother Bowyer brought that up Friday night in our Bible study. We were talking about the restoration of Israel. How necessary it is for our eyes to be open to the right things. You've got to have your eyes open to the right things or you'll be spiritually blind. You may be spiritually nearsighted. Or you may be entirely blind. And there are stages even of spiritual nearsightedness. You can just not see certain things that are there. They're there, but you can't see them. You see a lot of other things. And the danger of spiritual nearsightedness is that folks, because they see some things, assume the things they don't see must not be there. And so they miss things because they're seeing some things and they don't realize there's other things. If you really realized you were blind and you couldn't see anything, you might be safer because then you'd be praying, Lord, open my eyes. But somebody that's already has their eyes open, but they're limited in their sight, they're nearsighted or farsighted, whatever it might be, there's some things they're not going to see. Like the story I've told through the years about when I first got glasses as a child, I just thought the whole world looked a certain way. You know, if that's all the perspective you've ever had, if that's the only experience you've ever had, I thought this is how the world looks. Now, I hadn't been driving yet. That would have really been interesting if I started driving and thinking this is how it really is because everybody would be getting in car accidents right and left if they had sight like I had. So the whole world definitely wasn't seen like I was. But I found out in the classroom, sitting in the back row while a math problem was being put on the board that I thought, what in the world is the matter with this dear woman? I didn't say dear woman. It was a little more 
It wasn't cursing at her, but it was a little more rough than dear woman. I was frustrated that she keeps asking me to solve this problem on the chalkboard and she's writing it so little nobody could possibly see this thing. And she won't let me get up and come to the front and look at the board, which I probably would have had to stand up close like that to it. The fact of the matter is I didn't know I was nearsighted. And if I had never had anything challenge that assumption that my sight was normal, I may have never found out I was nearsighted. What if I'd lived on a desert island with that sight? I would have thought for all my days, this is just how human beings see. This is the best it gets. Isn't this something? Wouldn't it something at all? You know, a lot of times what our conception of God is or of truth is, is just like that. We really think we've seen something. This is really great. But we don't realize just how nearsighted we might be. And that started the process through which I eventually got glasses and later contacts that I found out there was a whole lot more that you can see in the world from a little bit better distance than what I thought you could see, which is a very lucky thing because if I hadn't found that out, I would have probably killed myself or somebody else. One day I was driving, don't do this, Jaden and Danny, who are both now going through the process of getting their licenses. One day I was driving down the road and I was driving like I... I still have it in me to do this, but I was driving like I did at the time, which is a higher speed than usual, and getting ready to go through a very big intersection, and right before I got to the intersection, one of my contact lenses tore. So I'm rubbing that eye, and the other contact lens went flying out. So I've got a half a contact lens and one eye, which isn't going to give you any sight, by the way. It's just going to cause it to be worse, that thing floating around in there and scratching at you. I'm trying to see where I'm going. I went straight through the intersection. The light was red. Cars coming off the expressway on both sides. My friends in the cars, me, are screaming bloody murder. I didn't know why they're screaming bloody murder. We're still driving. Nothing hit us. I figured we're fine. Until I heard later, you know, there was like eight cars up in somebody's yard over here. And luckily, nobody hit each other. But cars everywhere, because they were all trying to avoid this idiot driving through the middle of the intersection on a red light with half a contact lens. Sometimes we're like that spiritually, you know. We really think we know where we're going. We really think we've got some truth. We don't realize that you can have better sight than you have. And coming back here to Matthew 6, the light of the body is the eye, and if the eye is single, this is the key thing that struck me about these songs, if the eye is single, the whole body will be full of light. What Brother Bowyer was talking about Friday night. If the eye is single, that's another one of those things that's both true and false, which you'll see in the next couple of verses, because the eye can be single on the wrong thing. If your eye is singly focused on evil, you'll be full of darkness. You've got to have an eye that is single in terms of its attention on God. That goes on to say, it says, If thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that's in thee be darkness, how great that darkness. And then it says, No man can serve two masters. Well, what he's talking about is the fact that you've got to put your attention on one thing or the other. If you think you can live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world, Sharing your attention with doing the right things while you're also doing the wrong things, you're going to get tore apart like a wishbone one of these days. Because the fact of the matter is, that's not what God intends. He doesn't intend to share you. Your eye has to be single. Your wife, husband's out there, and your husband's wives out there is not intending to share you. Unless there's something seriously wrong with your relationship or demented in your conception of a relationship. It's not intended to be shared with others, that relationship. God isn't intending to share the type of relationship He has with you with anyone else. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a relationship with your spouse and your family. That's not the same kind of relationship. God's relationship with you is a different kind of relationship than you have with anybody else. And it has to be higher. 
You can't serve two masters. And Jesus' point here, talking about hating the one and loving the other and holding the one, despising the other. He's making a contrast between loving the things of the world, mammon, whether you're talking about materialism, you know, love for money or whatever it might be, or anything that is the things of the world versus the things of God. You've got to put the things of God first. You've got to seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then you do have to add some parentheses here because you'll find this to be true. If God wills it, everything else will be added to you. Some things may not be added to you. You may not be mature enough yet to get some things. If you had too much money, you may be traveling the world and never show up to church ever again. You know, I'm just going to have a good time. I've got endless amounts of money. God knows what he can give you at certain stages in your maturity that you can handle. That's just a little bit later in the passage, isn't it? Just about nine verses later, he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So we've got to make sure our eyes single, that we're not distracted by any lesser desires, that we're not dissuaded from the path of faithfulness by difficulties or distresses we go through. I've been talking about that a lot here this last few months, possibly because of some of the things we're dealing with as a nation and that we will be dealing with. I heard one of the brethren, and I happen to agree with him, though I don't know how he would define this in great detail, but probably we would define it similarly. But one of the things he was asked in one of the live streams that have been going on during the shutdown was, where are we at? What is this? Is this one of the great plagues in Revelation? Where are we at in terms of the prophetic time clock? And I think he's, he answered that very wisely. He said, this isn't one of those great plagues or one of those great conditions yet. It's the beginning of sorrows. I would agree with that. I think we're facing the beginning of sorrows. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to come in the years to come that are going to be things that we will sorrow over. It's not just sorrows that you're crying because you didn't get your way. I mean sorrows spiritually, things that are heartbreaking spiritually, problems that are going on that you look at and think, I wish it wouldn't be going this direction. I wish things weren't going downwards, you know, I wish we could start rising. I'm not talking about us as a people, I'm talking about our nation or our world. I don't mean the church. The church will have to rise, if it's the true church, it will have to rise in an equal measure to the level the world is falling, and it'll have to rise to an equal level of power to the level that the beast is rising. The church is going to have to rise. It cannot maintain the level it's been at. It's going to have to continue growing and rising. And one of the key ingredients of the church doing that is going to be binding our hearts together. It might not seem like it is. Maybe I'll come back to this in a minute because I've got a couple more verses on my mind. But if you go through the second chapter of Acts, you're going to find a pretty interesting series of events. You know that whole chapter begins and ends with the unity of the church. Begins and ends. The very first verse of the second chapter of Acts. Don't put it up for him, Heather. Oh, too late. What's the very first verse of Acts 2 say? Everybody in a Pentecostal church ought to be able to answer this without even blinking their eye. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Well, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's unity. You go to the end of that second chapter of Acts, you're going to find out everything they're doing in the last few verses was all about maintaining unity. Fellowship together, being in one spirit, in one mind. Everything was about unity, continuing together. And some of those other statements that are made in those last two or three verses of Acts 2, that was the goal. That was the very beginning of the church, you know. The very beginning of the church, and it was built on a foundation of unity and how important unity is. The early reign church was built on unity. The latter reign church will be built on unity. Not on controversy, not on conflict, but on unity. If we think we're going to create unity through conflict, we don't understand how God works. 
Did they spend 10 days fighting over what the church was going to be before the Spirit was poured out and finally got into unity by fighting it out? Yes or no? Doesn't look like it. They already had their marching orders from Jesus. And by the way, they were not a suggestion. I heard somebody say to me one time who had kind of a critical attitude towards the Pentecostal message. They said, that was just a blessing. That was an optional thing. If you wanted to be there on the day of Pentecost and receive that, you know that everyone there received it, right? So it wasn't selective. Some people got it and some people didn't. Well, if you wanted it, you'd show up. If you didn't really feel like you needed that, you'd need to show up. You think so? I can give you a simple proof why that isn't true. First chapter of Acts, Jesus commanded them to tarry at Jerusalem until the Spirit was poured out, until the day of Pentecost would come. And if you read a little earlier, you'll find out that he was there 40 days appearing to people from the time of his resurrection until before the Feast of Pentecost, 40 days he was appearing at different times to people, which tells you there was 10 days left. So for 10 days, they were working on something. I don't think they were fighting it out over anything. I think they were trying to get in one accord. Trying to get unity. We've got to have unity, saints. We've got to have it with one another. We've got to have it with God. We're going to have to have it as a body if we're going to be used in this last day. We are going to have to have unity. We ought to be seeking unity. Not looking for everything that's a controversy. Because there's some controversies you can't solve and neither can I. It doesn't matter if you're the greatest teacher or someone you think is the greatest teacher. We have had great teachers that have not solved some of our controversies. Some things are going to take God. He's big enough to do it, don't you think? And he's willing to do it in his time and in his way. He's willing to do it. Some things are going to take God. Some of the unity of that church took Jesus' direct interaction with them to get them to hold together. Because as you know, if you've studied the apostles at all, they were a different group of individuals. They had a lot of different personalities. If Jesus had not been who Jesus was, if he was just some Hebrew rabbi, he would have never been able to hold those 12 together, let alone any more than 12. Because they were very divergent in their personalities. Some of them had very clashing personalities. You realize you had a tax collector and a zealot in the same group, right? You didn't even know what a zealot was or what we call a zealot. Anybody know what they were in that day? It wasn't just someone that really loved the law. That, they might argue that's what it was about, but it was more than that. It was somebody that was determined to overthrow the Roman Empire so that Israel could have their kingdom again. They were zealous about creating a revolution. And many of the zealots were extremely prejudiced towards anybody that even had any relationship with the Roman Empire. And a tax collector is one of the worst. That's one of their own people adulterating themselves, so to speak, with the Roman Empire by doing their dirty work. So you've got a zealot and a tax collector in the same group. It would take some skill to keep them from going at each other, wouldn't it? you got people that seem to be much softer spoken and quiet and introverted like John, who you hardly see say anything in the Gospels. And in his own Gospel, when he talks about himself, he doesn't even name himself really. He's usually the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the pictures of him just leaning over on Jesus, a tender, quiet personality. And then on the other side, and isn't it funny, in the very beginning of the work of the church, God paired these two up. John with his soft-spoken, introverted personality, what appears to be, and Peter with his brash, extreme, extroverted personality. And those are the two who he uses as a team. And I'm going to tell you, they turned that Jewish world upside down in those first few chapters of Acts. You put those two men together with their differing qualities. When they were in unity, they were a powerhouse of the gospel. Now, either one of them could have done a mighty work for God, but I'm going to tell you right now, God used them in groups like that where he put them together and he put people together you wouldn't think he'd put together. People that you think, these two are not going to work. This is not going to work. They're not going to fit. 
But they did some pretty mighty things. And the church did some mighty things with all of its differences it had in terms of some of those areas. So we're looking for unity. We want our eye to be single, as the scripture said. We want our heart to be single. That's when you talk about language like that. It's really just talking about having a single-minded conviction and commitment to something that doesn't get distracted by something else. I said, you're not going to get dissuaded or discouraged by conditions that come up because I love God and I'm going to love Him. It doesn't matter what goes on. If you can really say that and mean it, if you can really make the kind of committed statement, I love the Lord my God and I'm going to love Him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength, mind and strength. And it doesn't matter what happens to me. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world around me. It doesn't matter what's going on in my body if I'm suffering or sick. It doesn't matter what's going on in my environment if I'm dealing with heartbreak and conditions that are sorrowful conditions of different kinds. It doesn't matter if I'm under strain or duress. I am going to love the Lord my God because He is deserving of that love. And because I know enough about Him. I've said this a lot of times lately too. You have to know enough about him to know why you should love him. And the more you find out about him, the more you'll love him. It's not true of everybody. There's some people, the more you find out about them, the less you may love them if you start thinking, my Lord, that's how they are when you spend some time with them, you know? Somebody you've only seen for a few minutes here and there, and then you spend a day with them and you think, oh my Lord, that's not what I thought, you know? They were putting on a facade. You know what a facade is? It's a false covering. It's not the real thing. Don't you appreciate when you are around things, whether it's a church, whether it's, certainly you'll find this to be true of the Lord, whether it's the people of God that you find out the more time you spend with them. These folks are, are not putting on a facade. I want to embarrass the bowyers by calling their names too many times in service. I'm trying to avoid even calling on them to stand up because not everybody wants to stand up when they come to a church, you know. But the fact of the matter is, they are not putting on a facade. I've spent enough time with them to know they are the real thing, and I appreciate the real thing. Don't you appreciate the real thing? It's a precious thing when something's real. God is real, saints. God is real. There's no facade. What he's saying about himself in the Bible is not a facade. It's the real thing. It's genuine. It's what he says it is. So we've got to have our heart fixed on the right things, have our eyes fixed on the right things. When your eyes single, that means it is fixed on something that you're not being distracted by other things. It's like a horse putting on a blinders, you know. That's so the horse doesn't get distracted or become skittish or scared by something going on in his peripheral vision. We've got to put some spiritual blinders on. Yes, there's a lot going on in the world. We can't be blind to it, but we need to be blind to it in the sense that it's not going to distract us from our relationship with the Lord. If there's a virus or some other thing that wipes over this land, this isn't intended to be a prophecy, but you can take it to the bank. We are going to face tremendous financial crisis in the future in this nation. We're going to face more health crises. That's why I've been telling you as we've been going through this crisis, please pay attention to what's going on. Pay attention to what is happening, what the government is doing, what kind of things are being changed, because every crisis from this point on is going to tighten this up more until freedom is gone entirely, until the church is set up in a place where it will be able to be persecuted without anyone even blinking an eye about that. We're moving towards that. It may not look like it by some of the decisions that are being made, and some of those decisions might even be positive in the short run, but in the long run, as they take effect, they're going to be used as a precedent for other things that will be very negative in the long run. So you better get your eye fixed now. Make sure your heart is single now. Make sure your mind is fastened down to your faith where you're not going to be changed. 
I think there's three times, they might all be in the book of Psalms, where David especially uses this phrase. He talks about his heart being fixed. Psalms 57.7 is one of them, Sister Heather, where he says, My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed and I will sing and give praise. Why would you need to say something like that? What kind of situation might you be in where you need to say something like that? Something that could cause your heart not to be fixed, right? But you know what the result is when you're dealing with travail or difficulty? Sing and give praise. Get the attention on God. Get the attention off of yourself and get the attention on God. Most of us want to have the attention on ourselves when we're suffering, you know. And understandably so, because we're suffering. But if you can't do anything about what you're going through, you can turn to the one who is never going to change. You can turn to God, start praising Him, start giving glory to Him. It'll do something for your heart if you praise God in the midst of affliction. It'll do something for your heart and your spirit. I mean, if you really praise Him and you won't stop praising Him. It'll break something in you to be doing something that is so counter to your carnal nature. It's so counter to our carnal nature to give God credit when He's not giving us what we want. But God, I hurt right now. But God, I'm suffering right now. But God, I'm going through things that you haven't answered my prayers. I've asked you and you haven't answered me. In fact, you not only haven't answered me, maybe you haven't even let me know you're even present. I haven't even felt your presence at all. Now look, if that's not your fault, if you haven't done something to disconnect from God, that'd be one reason you shouldn't even be complaining about it. If you've disconnected your relationship with God, don't complain that you're not feeling Him. Just get back to where you lost Him. Get back to where He was moving and you separated from Him. But if you haven't separated from Him, you still need to maintain your relationship with Him, even in times when you may not feel His presence or you may not feel like He is meeting your needs the way you want or need them to be met. There's a lot of things like that that we all are going through. I bet everybody in this assembly is going through something, some much more severe than others, I realize, where you feel like, where are you in this, God? Why haven't you fixed this for me yet? Why haven't you healed me of this yet? Why haven't you prevented some of these things from happening that are so heartbreaking? We've got to keep our mind fixed on God no matter what's going on around us or even what's going on within us. But eventually what's going on within us, if we will keep our mind fixed on God, will be changed to such a great degree that there won't be turmoil within anymore. We'll be at peace within because we've so fastened our attention to God that we stay in a state of peace. So we've got to fix our heart on God, sing and give praise. Another one is in the 108th Psalm. That might be the very first verse, the 108th Psalm, when he said, Oh God, my heart is fixed. This is almost exactly the same words. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. It's fixed no matter what's going on. That's hard. I've seen some people that have been examples of that that are shocking in how powerful their example is. I've seen people lose children which is one, to me, of the most horrifying things you could imagine happening. I'd rather someone give me a death sentence than to lose a child. I'd rather find out I'm going to be dead tomorrow than to lose a child. But I've seen people lose children, and they continued in their relationship with the Lord. They held their integrity. They were praising God in the midst of that. They weren't praising Him because they lost their children. They were praising Him because He's God. And let me tell you why you could even praise Him if you lost your child. Because if you have covered that child, if that child's young enough, or if that child was a child of promise that grew up and became a child of God, you don't have to sorrow over their future. They're in the hands of God. So you don't have to sorrow over their future. You might sorrow over your separation, and certainly so. But you don't have to sorrow over their future if they're in the hands of God. Then the 112th Psalm. I'm going to turn to that one. 
That's another example of one that uses this language where this phrase, my heart is fixed. I can't, I don't think I can quote that whole 112th Psalm, so I'm going to turn to my Bible. The 112th Psalm uses this language, and if you want a recipe, if you want to call it that, it's just 10 verses, you want a recipe for success, and I don't just mean material success, because most important is spiritual success. If you want a recipe for success, this is the psalm you ought to read, because there are some very important keys here. It says, Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that, here's an important key, feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. You've got to fear the Lord. You've got to love his commandments. Those are recipes for spiritual success. In some situations, if God's willing, they can be recipes for other types of success. God could bless you in some mighty ways, even materially, if you have this type of a feeling towards him. His seed shall be mighty upon the earth. The generations of the upright shall be blessed. And here's some of the natural things that some people have received who had that spirit. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endureth forever. Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. Here's the verse that was on my mind. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. If your heart's fixed, it doesn't matter what you hear. You could hear the most evil tidings that are possible. The economy is collapsing. There's sickness all around, you know, and danger on every hand. But my heart is fixed. Is your heart fixed? Or can it get so distracted that in troublous times, your focus shifts to the problem and off of God and you become full of anxiety and other things because you're so concerned about the problem and you're not keeping your eyes on the God who's bigger than any problem, saints. He's bigger than anything that we will ever have to face. So no matter how big the challenge might be, don't forget how big God is. Keep your mind on God no matter how desperate the situation it's not desperate for a child of God in the long run. Keep your eye fixed on Him. Keep your mind fixed on Him. Just this morning, I was thinking about, maybe because I've been reading with my ears, I've been listening to an audio book of a biography on the life of David. They weren't talking about his mighty men, but it got me thinking about his mighty men. I like poetic things, and I like alliteration and other things like that that make it easy to remember things. I've always liked the way that the King James translators described the not-so-mighty men, yet. When they showed up to the cave of Adullam and made this statement that they were in a state, I think it's in 1 Samuel 22.2. Everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in debt. Sounds like a great group, doesn't it, Brother Stevens? <laughs> this is who you want showing up to help you out, you know. David was having a lot of issues himself. If you're having a lot of problems and you're praying to God, here's how you have to just wait on the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Wait. He knows what he's doing. Here's a man that had been chased around the countryside, essentially. Saul is doing his best to kill him so he can get rid of this competitor, you know. And here he is suffering in a multitude of ways. He's got challenges from the Philistines. He's got challenges from knuckleheads like Nabal. He's got challenges on all kinds of sides, you know. And no matter how merciful he is to Saul, Saul keeps coming back to his anger against David. David does some very gracious things, not taking Saul's life when he could have, not challenging Saul when he might have had enough of a groundswell of support behind him. He could have done something with that, but he didn't. 
He waited on the Lord. And I'm going to tell you an interesting thing about waiting on the Lord that most people haven't probably even thought about in 1 Samuel 22, 1 and 2 here. David, I'm sure, was praying, God, will you help me? Wouldn't you be? If someone's hunting you to try to take your life? If you've had one problem after another, everywhere you've gone, it's been one challenge after another. If you have any sense, wouldn't you be asking God for help? God sent him some help. Does it sound like help? Did you read the verse yet? Here's David in the cave of Adullam. He's sitting in a cave, all right? He's had all kinds of challenges. God help me. And some folks start showing up. Bless the Lord, some people started showing up to help him out. What kind of folks showed up? Well, some of them were in distress when they showed up. That's not exactly someone's going to be very helpful, is it? You're needing help and they're in distress. Some of them were in debt. So I would assume if they're in debt, probably why they showed up is to escape their creditors, you know. Well, since they're going to try to get me to pay and maybe throw me in a prison if I don't pay, I'm joining up with David. You know, he's a renegade anyways, so they won't be able to catch me or whatever. Some of them were discontented. Distress and discontent are a little different. You can be distressed and not discontented in your spirit, you know. Someone can be a depressed personality. It doesn't mean they're critical of other people or unhappy about everything. It just means that they are low in their spirits. Someone that's discontented tends to be somebody who's a critical spirit, who's never happy with anything, right? Is that really who you'd want to help you out? You know, you're praying, God, please send me some help. Send you a bunch of critics to come and tell you how bad things are and they're not going to get better, you know, and depressed individuals that can't see past the darkness they're presently in, which maybe they've had some terrible things that occurred to them. Some people in debt that are really only trying to escape the tax collector or the bank, so to speak. That's why they showed up. How helpful would that group sound like it would be? Sound like what you want to build a church out of? Does it sound like eventually you'd have some of the greatest and mightiest warriors recorded in all the scripture come out of that group? Well, let God deal with things. Let God do the work. You know, God knows what he's doing. I'm going to tell you right now, I am no wiser than what I think David was. If I was sitting there pleading for God to send people to our church and we had almost no one here and all of a sudden a bunch of discontented people showed up and I'm thinking that isn't the Lord. That couldn't be the Lord. Why would he send a bunch of discontented individuals who are going to be critical of everything? Then he sends a bunch of folks in debt. They couldn't help the church, could they? If they're deep in debt, they're not going to be able to help support the church. And maybe the church is ready to go under. And here comes everybody that's so deep in debt, they don't know how to pay their own bills. They're certainly not going to be able to help the church. Thinking, my Lord, you didn't send them. And then you got a bunch of individuals who are in distress. They got so many problems that they can't hardly operate. You're thinking, well, I need help, Lord. What kind of help is this? It's as good as a fisherman, a tax collector, a physician. <laughs> A bunch of those guys. Amen. That's right. It's as good as that motley bunch that he gave Jesus. And by the way, Jesus didn't just go pick them out. It looks like he did. It looks like he just was walking around and, oh, that's a nice looking young man. There's a strong, brawny man. Let's bring... No, no, no. You realize that it was God himself who led him to each one of those men. He tells you that later. He says that God revealed it to him. He was praying and the Lord gave him those disciples. Now, depending on what Jesus' state of mind was in, I don't want to put him in any kind of negative state of mind, but I almost wonder if he was thinking, really, this is what I got to work with? These 12? The dirty dozen, Brother Kosa called them. They might have been to begin with, but I'm going to tell you what, that dirty dozen turned out to be the mightiest men on the face of the earth, all but one. And God replaced that one multiple times with others. 
Not only right for the day of Pentecost, but Paul and others that he added in to that type of a calling. Here's this group of individuals that you think, surely not, Lord. You didn't send these folks. Or what are you thinking? But they became some of the mightiest men in the entire scripture. They became some of the most faithful men. I want you to think about that. You realize that some of these men who were in debt, who were obviously running away from their debts by coming to David, or in some distress, maybe partly they may have brought upon themselves, discontent, perpetually unhappy and critical, you know, ended up being some of the mightiest men of God, not just in their actions, because there were mighty warriors like Goliath who were not godly, but they were mighty not just in their battle capabilities, which there is no doubt they were, but they were mighty in their faith and faithfulness because you would not do some of the things they did if you didn't have faith in the God who you knew had to protect you. It's like David going up against Goliath. You notice none of the other Israelites did it. Why not? That's what David was asking. When he showed up at the camp, he said, what is the problem? Why are you letting this uncircumcised Philistine talk so bad about our God and about the people of our God? What is going on? All of you warriors sit around here letting them come out and talk like this. You know why? Because David was not worried about who was the greatest warrior. He was worried about who had God behind him. And he knew that if he had God behind him, it wouldn't make a bit of a difference. And what's amazing about some of David's mighty men, they must have learned somewhere in the process of the experiences they went through with David that David's God was real. And they learned to have the same kind of faith in David's God Sure, he was their God as well, but they didn't have that kind of faith in him to begin with. And they learned to have a faithfulness to that God and to David. They were certainly faithful to David. You know the story. It's just one book and one chapter later, if that makes sense. It's 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter, when David, it said, long, this is a 15th verse. David was longing for a drink from that water from the well of Bethlehem. You just give me a drink from the water from the well of Bethlehem. He must have been sitting around the campfire, so to speak, just talking about, brethren, you just do not know how good the water was back in the well of Bethlehem where I grew up. And you know, three of those mighty men broke through the lines of the Philistines that had encamped around that city, went into Bethlehem, got him a drink of water. You just think about this. And then carried the water out without spilling it or anything else, without losing the water, back through the camp of the Philistines to bring it to David. And David was so humbled by it. This lets you know he wasn't intending for him to do it. He must have just been sitting there reminiscing. Oh, it was good. That water from that well. David was so broken over it. You know what he did. He said, I'm going to pour this water out to God because this is the blood of these men. They put their lives on the line to do this for me. You realize that came right out of the men that were discontented in debt and distress when they first got out of there, men that were willing to just give their lives for David. David wants a drink. If that costs us our lives, we love David that much. If it costs us our lives, we'll go get him a drink if we get killed doing it. What kind of faithfulness is that? What kind of change had happened in those individuals over that period of time to change them from being described as being in debt, discontented, and distressed to being so mighty that that's just a small example, too. You read through the stories of the mighty men. I thought about it. I love those stories so much. I thought one time maybe we'll have a Bible study series on it. But you think, well, how much practical use is there in that? Well, you could find a lot of practical lessons in the mighty men of David about standing against some things or having courage to go through some things. But I'm going to tell you what, you just read through them. You will find some incredible stories of some of the things those men did in courageous actions. They didn't have to do they chose to do. Nobody forced them into it. They could have walked away, but they chose to stand. They had run away from their problems when they came to the cave of Adullam. 
And they were running right at their challenges by the time they had reached that status of being mighty men. So their heart was fixed. One of the, my favorite passages of all of any of the men that came over to fight with David is the men that came across the Jordan. It said they came across the Jordan to get to David. They were trying to join David. They did not want to wait till the Jordan had settled down. The Jordan was in its flood stages and it was a very dangerous time to cross. And it said they crossed the Jordan at that time of the flood stage. They didn't wait till the water settled. They were so determined to get to David. And when it described those men, it gives you one of the most picturesque descriptions of anybody in the Bible. It says they had faces like lions. Do you know what it meant? They had faces like lions. Their heart was fixed. Their face was fixed. We are going to get to David. It doesn't matter what danger is in between us and him. Of the Gadites there in 1 Chronicles 12, 8, they're separated themselves into David and the hold in the wilderness. Men of might. Men of war fit for the battle that could handle shield and buckler whose faces were like the faces of lions and were like the rows upon the mountains. Those are the kind of men that came to David. Not all of them came that way to begin with, though, as you know. We've got to have our heart fixed on the Lord. We've got to go through whatever process it takes for us to be bound together tighter so that we have a uniting of our hearts with the uniting of God's will for us. Psalms 86 the 11th verse where he makes that statement, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and I will walk in thy truth. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Isn't that a poetic statement? Unite my heart. What do you think that means? You know the Bible talks about having a divided heart. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That's James, isn't it? If you are double-minded, that means you can't make up your mind between the choices you have. You want to do this, you want to do that. You're double-minded. That appeal was to God to unite our hearts. Now, I'm going to take that two different ways based on some of the songs we sang today. Number one, we want to unite our hearts with one another, don't we? But you're going to have to unite your heart with God first. What God wants from your life is going to have to be at a higher level, a higher priority than anything else. Maybe your comfort, maybe your present state. God's desires for you, God's purpose, God's will has to have the highest priority. So unite my heart. This isn't talking about us uniting our hearts together, but I still want you to get that out of it. This is talking about you uniting your heart with God. Unite my heart to fear thy name. In other words, let that be my highest priority. I've got such a high respect for who you are that it should guide everything I do. It should narrow down my choices. That's how your heart gets united. If you're a double-minded man, double is at least two choices, isn't it? It doesn't matter how many other choices there are, there's really only two. I said this when you are studying that statement that Jeremiah, Prophet Jeremiah said, talking about the old paths, where it is the good way. There's really only two old paths. There's really only two choices. You could have a million choices fitting inside the one, but there's really only two. It's God's will or your will. And eventually, if your heart is united, it's God's will and your will. That's what it means when he says, unite my heart to fear your name. The only way I can have the kind of respect for you, that's what fear means there. The only way I can have the kind of respect and reverence for you I ought to have is if my heart is united. Meaning, right now my heart's divided. I want to do what you want, and I want to do what I want. But what I want you to do for me, Lord, and it begins you receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. I want you to unite my heart to fear your name. I want you to bring my desires into harmony with your desires. I want to think like you. I want to make choices like you make. 
I want my disposition to be your disposition. When my heart is united with you, that means my heart is your heart. If your heart is united with your spouse, it doesn't mean you and your spouse are the same person, but it does mean you and your spouse are acting in perfect unity. That's what God's role, I said earlier on about marriage was, is that you're to be one. Not one person or being, but one in purpose. That's one of the most confusing scriptures in the Bible to some people that's so very simple if you just will not cherry pick things. If you'll just read the whole context and the whole book is John 10.30 when Jesus said, I and my Father are one. I have heard people teach complicated and entirely incorrect doctrines out of that little simple statement that would be easily corrected if they just read the whole book of John. And you wouldn't even have to read the whole book. Just keep reading for seven more chapters. Just read seven more chapters. You'll understand exactly what Jesus meant when he made the statement in John 10.30 about he and his father being one. Just go down to John 17. I don't want to read through that whole chapter right here, but if you want to jump up to the 11th verses, that 17th chapter is primarily a prayer that Jesus is making to God regarding his desire for the church, for his disciples and the rest of the church. Now notice what he says in the 11th verse. Now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. He's getting ready to go back to the Father, and they're going to still have to be there, and he's not going to be personally present with them. He said, I come to thee. He was getting ready to offer up his life, and not long after that, he'd be returning to the Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. There's what it means. That's the oneness we're seeking. It's the same oneness that Jesus has with God. They're not the same person. But I'll tell you what they are. They're perfectly one in purpose. And God is desiring that we be one in purpose in the same way. And then down around the 20th verse. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. He wants them to have the same kind of oneness he has with his Father. And we will if we go through the process that's required of us. We'll all be one just like that. Just like the relationship between Jesus and the Father, we will have that same oneness. That oneness that I started saying here earlier, and I'll let you get, start getting ready to receive the offering, because we're going to be headed that direction in the next couple of minutes. When I said here in Acts 2 that that church was built on unity from the very beginning, the very first verse of that chapter, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord and in one place. And then down at the end of that chapter, after all the incredible events of that day, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the powerful message and the 3,000 saved. So down here in the end of the second chapter of Acts, he says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This is maybe Acts 2.42. And fellowship, breaking of bread, something we're going to do in just a few minutes here. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were, here's the word about unity, together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and their goods, and they parted them to all as every man had need. And they, here's this again, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they'd eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And as a result, in parentheses, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Sometimes we say, well, Lord, we want more people to be added to the church. What will it take for you to add more people to the church? Did you just hear what the core part of what this message is about? A church in unity. You want to know what the core things that will be necessary for God to add more people to the church? The church has to be in unity. 
If a church is not in unity, why would God add people to it? Why would we expect for God to use us in a mighty way if we can't be unified among the group that we have already? God is seeking unity. And when he gets unity among his people, there will be a greater power that will come that will build up the church in a way we have not seen yet. That's exactly what he's talking about in Ephesians 4 in that first few verses when he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you're called, the vocation wherewith you're called, with all lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. That's what we're trying to do right now as a body of people, as a church, in our families. In our relationship with the Lord, we need to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. You want to be at war with God? We need to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with God and with one another. And then he goes down through talking about the seven key things that we have to be unified on. And by the way, I think that we are unified on. I could go through those, but it's getting too late for me to do that. I want to leave room here. But you can just read them on your own. One body and one spirit, and that isn't the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit of the body. One body, one spirit. Even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all. Those are the seven different things we have to be unified on. We better know who God is. You better know who Jesus is. You better know what the body is. It's His church. And you better understand what that means. You better understand that the church that is His body has to produce His spirit. If we don't produce the Spirit, we aren't really His body. So you must have misrecognized the body because you're not producing what needs to be produced to be the body. Then you've got to have one faith. That's just not talking about every bit of doctrine that's got to be correct. That's saving faith. That's the type of faith you need to have in God to be saved from your past sins. And you've got to realize you've got a calling on your life, and you have to be faithful to that calling. And you've got to have one baptism, which seems to contradict Hebrews. 6.2, which says baptisms. There's a doctrine of baptism. Seems to contradict John the Baptist when he said, I baptize with water, but one cometh after to baptize the Holy Spirit in fire, which is three. The baptism we have to be unified on is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism that puts you in the one body. That's what gives you the unity. It's not that there's one baptism, but there's one baptism that helps create that one unity. Water baptism does not create unity in and of itself. It just lets you know you came out of something. Now you still got to come in the right thing. Holy Spirit baptism will put you in something. But that doesn't all by itself create that kind of unity. You're going to have to be baptized in the Spirit and live and walk in it in order to be in the right kind of unity. And then you go down to the 13th verse. Where then he says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. The unity of the faith is a product of those other things happening first. We've got to have some of the other things in place or we'll never come to the unity of the faith. This is just my opinion. So anybody that's from any another assembly, which we've got at least a couple, take it with a grain of salt. This is my personal pastoral opinion. But I don't think we're going to come to the unity of the faith before the church is restored. I've heard some people say we've got to come to the unity of the faith so the church can be restored. Restored to what? I think we need to be working to come to the unity of the faith. But our greatest challenge right now is staying in the unity of the Spirit and working to be in the unity of the faith. But you read in the verses that precede this, he gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There's going to have to be the divine order of God working in the church in its fullness to bring us to the unity of the faith. And until we have that in its fullness, we're not likely to come to the unity of the faith. So trying to fight our way to the unity of the faith and divide over things 
before God has begun the restoration process is dangerous. We ought to be praying for restoration. And I'll tell you what you ought to pray when you're praying for restoration. God, give me the right kind of spirit that I can be changed. Give me a spirit that's willing to be changed. Give me a teachable spirit. Let me be the kind of person that wants to be in relationship with you no matter what. If you start restoring the truth to your people, and it's something that I haven't seen before, I won't run away from it. I won't say, well, that's just not how I've heard it. That's not how maybe a lot of other people believe it. Who cares how anyone believes it? We want to know what God believes. Who cares if all of Christendom has it wrong? You ought to care because they're in darkness if they do. Nobody has it all right, so we're seeking that, aren't we? One of these days, God's going to restore his people. And you'll see that in the next few verses, what it's going to look like when he does that, that we should be working on right now. When he goes on there in Ephesians 4, until we all come to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that you henceforth, this is what will happen, be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. This isn't what the church ought to be. By the slight of men, just letting just somebody with an intelligent mind lead you into some false doctrine. Cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But what? Speaking the truth in love. Look, if we can't speak the truth in love, there's no point in speaking the truth at all. What good are you going to do speaking the truth if you can't speak it in love? That we might grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. From whom? From Christ. Christ is the one we received this from. The whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That's what God's working on right now. He's trying to bind us together like these songs talked about. Bind us together in love. Bind our hearts together.